and the text will be on the screen. So 1 Samuel 27. And as I said in the prayer, this is probably the most difficult chapter in the book of 1 Samuel to understand. And I'm going to do my best with it. But please forgive me if I get it wrong. Okay? Which is entirely possible. But let's go with it. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 27. This is God's Word. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now do you see why this is going to be so difficult to understand? If you're keeping up with this study, until now, David has shown us just a remarkable faith. He stood up to a giant when no one else would fight him. He's trusted God for years to provide for him and his men in the wilderness. He has confronted Saul twice without fearing for his life in either circumstance. So this verse is just really strange. It is so out of character for David. And when I read this verse, I was like, where is this man's faith? I mean, this is not courage. This is not faith. This is despair. And notice that he doesn't ask God what he should be doing. The writer tells us he makes this decision in his heart. And what we know about the heart from the Bible and from 1 Samuel is that the heart sometimes leads us to make foolish decisions, right? His heart leads him to the absurd belief that there is nothing better for him than to go to the land of his enemies. It's crazy. He leaves his homeland and escapes to his enemies, and God is silent. Verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And if you remember, this is actually the second time that David fled to Gath. Gath was the hometown of Goliath. And this is the same king as before, at least I think it is. Back in chapter 21, David went to Gath alone, and the king arrested him. Then David pretended to be insane, and they let him go. Now David comes back, and this time he's got an army. He's got 600 men, 
But they all have wives and children and servants. And so with the households, this is probably more like six or seven thousand people. So the circumstances have changed. Okay, verse five. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So David's basically asking for an alliance with this pagan king. He's uh, clearly submitting himself to Achish. Okay, so he's David, the king of Israel, the the anointed one, is submitting himself to a Gentile king for almost a year and a half. He asks for a town, and he's given the town of Ziklag. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Ziklag was actually a town that was geographically inside the Promised Land. It was part of the territory that had been set aside for the tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe, but it had never been conquered. So, in other words, it's possible that this may have been David's plan all along. Like, if we wanted to paint David in the best possible light, maybe he's not actually abandoning Israel. Um, You know, he's just negotiated a safe haven inside the promised land in a town that rightfully belonged to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. Okay, so that's, that's possible. And yet God is still silent. God is not speaking. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So these tribes were occupying unconquered regions of the promised land. And David is now using his new location to make raids against these tribes and to take territory for Israel. But Achish, the king of Gath, does not realize this. He has no idea that this is what David was doing. Look at verse 9. David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jerem. Jeramielites. That one got me. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. Now, do you see what David is doing? This is very clever. David is not technically lying because these were the geographical regions where he's attacking, but he's making it sound like he's attacking Israelites when in fact he's attacking the Gentiles. He wants Achish to believe, apparently, that he's attacking Israelites, that he is a traitor to his own people. 
And that's clever. I got lost. Okay, verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. Okay, so as the old pirate saying goes, dead men tell no tales. David kills everyone. Seemingly to keep the king of Gath from hearing the truth. That he's not attacking Israelites, he's attacking Gentiles. And notice that David's trick works. Achish thinks David has been killing his own people. But what the writer doesn't tell us is if this is okay. <laughs> and this is really this was really a struggle for me. I mean, commentaries are all over the place. I mean, what about the moral dilemma here? Is this okay that David does this? Not just the deception, but also the killing, right? He's killing women. And you might say, well, he's exercising the ban, right? That the, the leader of Israel is supposed to kick out all the Canaanites and kill everybody and scorch the earth. And he's just doing what he's supposed to do. But guess what? He doesn't actually do that. He takes all the animals. Which, if you remember, is why Saul got in trouble with God in the first place. So what in the world do you do with this story? Some commentaries defend David by saying, these people were already under a curse from God. Remember, the Canaanite tribes were sacrificing children. They were doing other terrible things. So David was only doing what God had commanded Joshua to do long ago. And he didn't have to exercise the whole band because he wasn't actually the king yet. That's what some commentaries have said. Maybe. But other commentaries say, actually, David goes too far. It seems like he's protecting himself or he's doing this only for profit. There's no mention of the glory of the Lord. God never spoke and told him to do this, right? So, what do you think? The truth is, we don't really know because the writer doesn't tell us what God thinks about this. He just gives us the story and God is silent. We're going to end by reading the first two verses of chapter 28, which is, by the way, a cliffhanger. <laughs> okay? There's no resolution in this story today. Verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Okay, this is a problem. The jig is up, so to speak, right? David won't be able to hide the truth any longer. But he at least buys himself some time to think. Verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. How's that for an answer? And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. 
David was a very smart man. Achish, not so much, right? He gives an answer that sounds good, but notice he didn't really say anything. Just kind of like, I'll show you what I can do. Okay, that sounds really cool. Um, We're not going to find out how this story ends until we get to chapter 29, but um, this is where we're going to end today. Now, my question is, what in the world do we do with this? I committed to preaching a chapter a week through this book, and what do we do with this chapter? Okay, On the one hand, David proved himself to be a strong, gifted man, right? He's a shrewd leader. We've learned that about David, um, especially from this chapter. But on the other hand, David seems to be following his heart in this chapter instead of following God. And we know that gets people in all kinds of trouble in the Bible. So, is David a good example in 1 Samuel 27? Or is he a bad example? And the writer doesn't really help us decide because God was silent in the story. And you probably won't hear many sermons on this chapter because it is so stinking difficult to apply. Okay? But there is at least one thing that I want us to learn from it. And there's actually a grid that we're going to use to try to help evaluate David's actions. And in doing that, we're also going to talk about our own decisions, our own actions. Okay, so this is how we're going to try to do this this morning. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we do the right things for the right reasons. Sometimes we get it right. I did what I was supposed to do. And I meant to do it in my heart, right? Now, we know the only person who's ever done that all the time was who? Jesus, okay? The rest of us, not so much, okay? But that's the first category, okay? Right actions, right motives. Sometimes we get it right, okay? But sometimes we do the right things, but we do them for the wrong reasons, For instance, I might choose to give money to charity or I might volunteer at a soup kitchen. But I'm not doing it because I love to do those things or I love the people that I'm serving. Instead, I just want the praise or the recognition for it, right? It's not sincere. It's just a show. And that would be an example of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, okay? Now, sometimes... We do the wrong things for the wrong reasons, okay? These are actions that are just clearly, obviously sinful, right? No one's going to dispute this was bad. It's kind of like the Johnny Cash song, Folsom Prison Blues. He says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, okay? That's just bad. Everyone agrees. Uh, Wrong action, wrong reason. But sometimes... Sometimes we do the wrong things for the right reasons. At least we think that what we're doing is justified. Old movie reference, um, don't go watch it, but uh, it's the best thing I can think of at the moment. Um, Samuel L. Jackson's character in the movie A Time to Kill, charged with murdering two men who assaulted his daughter, 
And in the most famous scene, the prosecutor asks Jackson's character if those men deserve to die, and he yells, yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. And every man in this room resonates with that response, but it was still wrong. Our intentions don't matter when we commit sin. They do not soften God's response to our sin as much as we wish that they did, right? I know I did the wrong thing, God, but you got to understand. Proverbs 14, verse 2, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And this is what I want us to focus on for a few minutes. The truth is that most of us believe that we're doing the right thing all the time. Even if we're doing the wrong thing. I mean, this is the problem of the human heart. This is the deception of sin. Pretty much everybody I know including myself, thinks they're doing the right thing most of the time. T.S. Eliot said, most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. And he's right. This is what we do. This is the problem. Facebook Live is probably about to cut off. So if you're watching, I apologize, but I'm fixing to talk about Facebook. So they're probably going to like shut it down. But here goes. Okay. Facebook creator Mark Zuckerberg is in the spotlight right now because of leaked documents showing that his company may be damaging society in really profound ways. Y'all seen the news, heard about this, right? Um, I read an interview this week with a lady named Cara Swisher. She's a journalist who has followed Mark Zuckerberg since 2010. And she talks about the fact that Mark really believes he's doing the right thing. He has a positive belief in humanity and sincerely wants his platform to help the world. This is what he believes, right? At least what it looks like he believes. But of course, the data... And most of us who use the platform might question whether or not Facebook is actually really good for the world, right? It might be hurting us, not helping us. And at the end of the interview, she says this. She says, Mark is willing to take people's private information and tell you he knows what's best. But he doesn't know what's best, and he never did. It's so easy to make him evil. I don't think he's evil. That's sort of an easy way out of it. She says there's a really famous quote that says, evil is unspectacular and always human. And she says, Mark is very human. That's the problem. No one man should have that kind of power is kind of what she's saying. He's not capable of deciding what's best. 
And guys, neither are we. We are also very human. And so was David. And that's kind of the lesson, I think, of 1 Samuel 27. Even David gets it wrong, and he's going to get it really wrong in 2 Samuel a few times. Um, But this is humanity. Now, I, I don't know if what David did in chapter 27 was completely right or wrong or, you know, I doubt his intentions were good because of what verse 1 says about his heart. He went to Gath clearly for the wrong reasons. But this is everyone I know, including myself, every single day. Sometimes by God's grace, I may do the right thing. Sometimes I do the wrong thing, and I know it's wrong, and I still do it. But very often, if not most of the time, I do the wrong thing, but I think I'm doing the right thing. And I want to suggest to you that that's the real human problem. I mean, yes, doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, sure, that's, we all agree that's bad, but what about all of us doing the wrong things for what we think are the right reasons most of the time? That's our problem. But there's good news, right? And even, and this is what's beautiful, always a hand of Jesus everywhere, right? Every chapter. And even in this seemingly godless chapter where God never speaks, there is a hint, just a hint. There's a hint of good news. And this is where I found it, okay? Now, we would describe this chapter... You could describe this chapter, what happens with David, as sort of a self-exile, okay? Exile in the Bible is something that God usually does to His people when they break the covenant. Exile was a curse, okay? God would send His people into exile and then He would use it to, not just to punish them, but also to lead His people back to repentance, right? So David, in this chapter, is not being forced into exile by God. God didn't tell him to go. He chose it. David self-exiled. One way to look at the story. Now, can you think of anyone else in the Bible who self-exiled? Jesus Christ. The cross was a self-exile. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He suffered willingly. He placed Himself into exile. Okay, Very different motives, very different circumstances. Just a hint, like I said, right? Just a hint. But Jesus placed Himself... Under the curse of sin and death, the Scriptures had said, cursed is any man who what? Who hangs upon a tree. And there was this moment on the cross when that exile became painfully clear. As we read the story, Jesus cries out on the cross, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But who said that first? David said it. Psalm 22. And so what did Jesus do? He became very human. He took David's place. He took my place. He took the place of all God's people. He exiled Himself to bring us back into fellowship even though we spent and will spend our entire lives on this earth doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons and the wrong things for the right reasons and the right things for the wrong reasons. Jesus was David's hope. He is my hope. He is your only hope. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, rest your faith in Him this morning. And if you have never done that, I want to suggest to you that part of the problem is encountering the idea that you are sinful and guilty and not really wanting to face that. And and everybody that I know, if you were to draw a line of good versus evil, okay? Really, really, really bad over here and really, really good over here, right? And you were to draw a line in the middle, everybody I know is going to put themselves just on the other side of the good line, right? I'm not the best person you know, but I'm safe. And the problem is that according to the Bible... The only ones who are safe are the ones who are all the way over there. (laughs) Which is none of us outside of Christ. It's not just, of course you're not Hitler, okay? But that's not the point. Our God is holy. We said it in the call to worship. He is holy. He is looking upon the hearts and souls of men in justice. He's looking for the righteous. He's only going to find that inside Christ. Gracious Father, we we thank You for um, Your Spirit, which we need to help us to believe that this is true, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, that we make a mess of everything we touch apart from Jesus, and we need You to convict us of this. I pray that this morning Your Spirit would touch our hearts, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time to lead us to repentance, to give us the faith we need to trust in Jesus. There is a way that seems right to us. Its way ends in death. Our Father, would You grant us a new vision, not of our own self-righteousness, not of our own path to salvation, whatever that may be. We're trusting in the wrong things, but Lord, we pray that vision would be Christ, that we would see the One who exiled Himself for us, became like us for us. In His name we pray. Amen.